Our first scripture passage is from the book of Psalms. This passage will be referenced throughout the sermon, and so we invite you, if you wish, to follow along uh, during the sermon. It's on page 501 in our Pew Bible. The 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths, in right paths, for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading for today comes from the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if the psalm you just heard is among the most recognizable from the Hebrew scriptures, this text, 1 Corinthians 13, is probably one of the most recognizable from the New Testament. It is called the chapter of love by many people and is most often heard at weddings. Although I must say that the Apostle Paul did not write it for weddings. He wrote it for us, for the church. This was to be the norm of our life, this way of being together, a people of love. And I'm only going to read the final few verses of this wonderful chapter, and I will refer to, to it or use these verses right at the end of my sermon. I'm beginning at verse 12. For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. And the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Shepherd us, O God, beyond our fears, beyond our wants, from death into life. Amen. It's so good to be with you. It's been 14 years, but you know, I, I guess that's a sign of how much Wes does not trust to bring me back into the pulpit until he's about to head off, you know, away from here. But it's wonderful to be here. I've seen you for these 14 years through Wes's eyes. We've talked almost every week about 
how things are going, how we're doing. You can talk to me afterwards and I'll tell you about how, how he's talked about you. But I'll leave that for, for the uh, after service time. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary gift to have a friend for over 30 years. I'm sure many of you sitting here, if not all of you, can identify in your own life. Those few, I'm talking beyond the spouse, who have stayed with you, been with you, walked with you, sometimes carried you over 30 plus years, it's an amazing thing. And I, I so value my friendship with Wes. We've shared a life, we've shared a vocation, it's a rare gift, and so it is indeed a great honor to stand in his pulpit with you on this day. On Friday afternoon, I boarded my flight in Portland, Maine. I live on the mid-coast, Maine, and it was a pleasant 67 degrees. I'm not sure the last time you saw 67 degrees. I'm bringing it to you today. And as my plane descended into Phoenix at 8 p.m. on Friday night, the pilot came on to say, oh, and by the way, it is a balmy 110 degrees in Phoenix. I think you've got to be kidding me. I mean, we've seen it on the news, but you have to be here, don't you? You have to be here to understand. And Wes took me for about a 35-minute walk in it yesterday, just in case I wasn't getting it. <laughs> I count it as a sign of my true friendship that I chose to leave the cool climbs of Midcoast, Maine to join you here in the fiery furnace. <laughs> that being said, I genuinely want to thank you for an exceptionally warm welcome. <laughs> Psalm 23. It is probably the best known, the most loved, memorized, and recited psalm of all 150 psalms. How many of you know it by heart? All hands go up all across the sanctuary. So here's the question, why is it so well loved, held so closely to our hearts? After all, I think it's safe to say, in spite of the children's sermon today, none of us have had any extensive experience with shepherds. You know, one of the things I think that draws us into the psalm, that may not strike you at first, but I hope it will after I talk about it, is as you read this psalm, as you let it read you, you, you have a sense for a movement and a pace that is very different than the movement and the pace that tends to characterize our lives in these days. I mean, really, think about it. When was the last time you laid yourself down in a lush field, literally, and breathed in the air, luxuriating in the sheer beauty of the world? Or, or, or when did you take the time to linger blissfully beside a body of still water? I think it's safe to say that there's a common sense 
that the movement of our lives in the early 21st century is very different than the movement, the cadence, the cadence that is in this ancient text. It seems to me that these days, the more we feel unsure about where we are headed, the faster the pace of life seems to go. It's almost often that we feel like we have to run faster and faster just to stay in place, not to fall behind. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who once quipped, when you're skating on thin ice, your safety is in your speed. So we keep moving. The pace, the movement imaged in this psalm draws us in. I think it catches us up and taps into our longing for a different way of being. Let me stay with this time, the way time is imagined in this psalm. Let's take the past and the present and the future, the tenses of life. In this psalm, if, if you look at it and read it carefully, you'll see how the past and the present and the future are intertwined and interrelated and meaningfully integrated so that they flow into and out of each other. And again, I would say that is so typically not the case with us in the early 21st century. If there's one word that you hear almost every day that is used to characterize the present, the word is unprecedented. Have you heard that word of late? Unprecedented. And because it does indeed feel like we are living in an unprecedented moment, the past feels increasingly irrelevant, less reliable as a guide or reference point for our lives. And the future, well, as someone once said, the future isn't what it used to be. I think it's fair to say it feels undeniably precarious. I don't need to tell you that, you're living in 115 degree temperatures day after day. I mean, this is a test. And everybody so far when I have used this test has failed. So you can see me afterwards if you think you can pass the test. Here's the test. When was the last time, well tell me, the last time you saw a movie about the future that made you want to be there? All right, I'll let you sit with that for a while, and again, please tell me afterwards if you have a recommendation. I'm eager to see it. I need to see it. Again, I hope you have a sense for how the psalmist is conveying to us a different way of being in time. For, for him, the past is a source of affirmation and encouragement. I love it where he speaks about looking back and seeing how goodness and mercy 
has followed him all the days of his life. And I have this sense, and you've had this experience, where you stop at some point, turn and look at your life and think, oh my goodness, I had no idea of how I was being cared for. I had no idea. And in those moments you say, truly, goodness and mercy has followed me. And the past comes alive. And it's always that sense, it's a mercy and a goodness beyond my own making, beyond my own deserving. The present, you can't read this psalm without having a sense that the present moment is capacious. It, it has a fullness, it overflows. It's a place to rest, to abide, and to dwell. And the future, the future as he names it is open, full of possibility and promise and of destiny. This psalm conveys a way of being that I think we long for, which is what I think taps us deeply when we read it. There's a posture this one the psalmist has that is not reactive to this world, or anxious, or frenetic, or weary. Rather, he conveys a posture of responsiveness to the world. An openness, a posture of trust and of receptivity. How hard these things are to come by in these days. He feels known by one beyond himself. This one who leads him and guides him and restores him and protects him and comforts him and makes a way for him and provides a dwelling place, none of which are his own making. This is the one who has come to know him. I want to give you a word today that I think names wonderfully what it means to be situated in time and in this world in this way. And that word is resonance. It's a word I came across several years ago when I was reading a sociologist from Germany named Hartmut Rosa. Wes and I have been reading him for, for several months, if not years now. And he talks about resonance as this God-given capacity with human beings that, as I read it as a theologian, I feel like this comes as close as I've heard to naming the experience that we have in the presence of God. Here's just one quote I want to read to you today from the writing of Papa Rosa. He's a sociologist, actually, but you'll hear in this quote, he writes like a theologian. The central message of the Bible is, he says, that the idea that at the root of our existence, at the heart of our being, there is not a silent, indifferent, or repulsive universe, dead matter, or blind mechanisms, but there is a process of resonance and response. By that he means someone who hears us and sees us and who finds ways and means to touch us and respond, who breathes life into us in the first place.
I put it simply, I think Psalm 23 is a witness to resonance. And it is this unspoken yearning we have for resonance that, uh, that draws us into its meaning. It says a lot about why we treasure, why this psalm is so universally treasured. Let me say a bit more about this thing called resonance. And Rosa gives it four qualities. He says, you know a resonant moment by four qualities. One is you feel touched. You feel moved by something that is acting upon you from the outside. It could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be an experience you're having, but it's something coming at you from the outside that you feel in a way is almost calling you, calling you out of yourself. And secondly, he says, there's this feeling of emotion, of response. You can't help but respond to it. We feel drawn out of ourselves into something larger. It's this moment, you might say, of self-transcendence that we have in these moments. And thirdly, he says, it's always transformative. We are always changed by it in some way, some small way. We know we will not be the same person after this. It stays with us. And fourthly, he says, it's elusive. It always takes us by surprise. We don't control it. We can't bottle it up. We can't save it. We can't store it. It's not something we can produce. It's only something we can receive as a gift. It's like what we call grace. We are touched, we respond, we are changed, and it's elusive, it takes us by surprise. I had this moment many years ago, some 30 plus years ago now, my daughter, our firstborn was about 12 months old and she was coming to the church that day where I was serving as the pastor to be dedicated. We, I was in a church that didn't baptize infants and dedication was what we did in this congregation and Jennifer, my wife, brought her, she wasn't wandering there by herself, my, my wife brought her to my office and holding her hand as she was just at that point just beginning to walk and they walked through my door. And as soon as Julia saw me, she ran to me, leaped into my arms. And I was just undone. I don't, I mean, that had happened countless times. But there's something about that moment, perhaps it was the occasion, the, the, the fact that the community would be gathering and that we'd be offering her, dedicating her to God, and, and the sacredness of it all. It's all in that moment, that instance, I was just undone. And I, I felt this sense of what it meant to be called to be a father. How this person was in effect calling me out to be this being. And, and, and the grace of it all was just overwhelming in that moment. I know that as I'm saying this, you can remember a moment. It's not just about a child leaping into your arms. But you know you've had those moments in which things take you, something takes you, and you can't really explain it at all. It just happens and you let it happen. And all those four things I mentioned don't happen sequentially. They happen all at once. There's something else about resonance I need to say, and that is the opposite of resonance is not dissonance, as if for resonance to exist, all that is dissonant has to be done away with. It's a mystery how this happens, but 
Dissonance becomes sort of enfolded into resonance in an interesting way. I mean, look at the psalm itself, this resonant psalm. In it, he talks about evil, fear, and death, and enemies. But somehow those things don't strike us as negating what the psalmist is talking about. They become, in a way, sort of written into the story. Psalm 22, as the sequence would suggest, comes right before Psalm 23. Now, you may not be familiar right away with Psalm 22, as you are with Psalm 23. But I dare say you have at least one verse of it memorized. And that is the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know where those words come from, the lips of Jesus on the cross. And then comes Psalm 23, right there, back to back. It is a reminder. In a way, it becomes an answer to that experience of profound, even ultimate, dissonance. Both of these psalms are prayers that are offered. And resonance, you see, abides even in those times when it is absent. A good friend of mine died several weeks ago. Liz was a member of my former congregation in Glencoe. She was 88 years old and lived a wonderful, incredible life. At her memorial service, which only took place last week, her son Charlie recalled what I would call a particularly resonant moment in her life. It took place when Liz was only 45. Charlie, who was now in his 50s, was 13 at the time, and his two older sisters were 19 and 21. And the moment he recalled took place on Liz's 45th birthday. The day, that day, was also the day that his father, Liz's husband of 25 years, died after a long struggle with leukemia. And like Liz, he was only 45 years old. Charlie recalled how right after his father had passed, Liz called the three children into the hospital room where his father lay on the bed. And she had them gather around that bed and hold hands together. And then he said, Liz began to pray. And then he recalled and cited her prayer, recited her prayer by heart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. I never had a chance to talk to Liz about that moment, but if I had, I have no doubt that she would have named it as a resonant moment. 
One way to think of resonance, as I said earlier, is that it's a God-given capacity that we possess as human beings to respond to this God who is, who is, as Augustine said, the one who is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. And I think worship, being in worship together, is, is always potentially a sphere of resonance. Just being here, the very act that you have come today, you may not have realized it, but you have presented yourself. Even the act of being here, sitting in the pew, is offering up of yourself, opening yourself up, however reluctantly, to God, to the moment, to the possibility. It's never guaranteed that you'll have resonance here in this place, but it's always a possibility. And I think sometimes more of a possibility here than most places. But it's not only here. You and I can have these moments when we glimpse something deeper and larger. Well, true about life, it can happen in concert halls and in movie theaters, around table with friends or with our spouses, with our children, at work, at play. It happens. Resonances, the possibility is everywhere because the glory of God is always possible anywhere to break in upon us, to open us up, to allow us to be in time and place in a different way. Yes, we can live in ways that make us invulnerable to resonance. And we stop paying attention. We, we don't know how to sit still anymore, just to be, to rest. We've closed ourselves down. Perhaps we're angry, resentful, or hostile, or suspicious, or we just no longer believe in grace. There's ways that we can become invulnerable to resonance, but the opposite is also true. It can happen as simply as a child leaping into your arms or the offering of an ancient prayer from a deep, dark valley. These are moments of pure grace when, in an instance, we catch a glimpse, just a glimpse of love that moves the sun and all the other stars. And in those instances, we remember that in this life, we only ever see through a mirror dimly. But we are reminded that one day we shall see face to face. And even though now in this life, we only know in part and momentarily, then we will know fully, even by God's grace, that we are fully known. And so now, my friends, in this life, in all of your lives, in this world, abide faith, hope, and love. And of course, the greatest of these is love. Amen.